Hi, and welcome to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. My name is Ruth Haley Barton, and I'm founder of the Transforming Center, and I'm here with Steve Weens, Senior Pastor of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Steve is also a Transforming Community alumni, which means we've spent a lot of time laughing, growing, and being transformed in the presence of Christ in community with other leaders. Ruth, we are back. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Season three, pursuing God's will together from decision-making to discernment in community. And I have to tell you, I love all your books, and that's just true. But this one has been actually really helpful for our leadership team at our church on a number of occasions. Mm -hmm. So we've moved through the the movements of discernment together. Mm -hmm. It has been both hard and deeply um, people feel us after we do it, no matter what decision we end up making, the constant feedback I get from our teams is I feel so much more together. I feel yeah. so much more united. Yeah. Yes. And so I'm excited yeah. for this season. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And it's encouraging to me to hear that as we begin. Okay. So episode one, we're going to dive right in the heart of spiritual leadership. So Ruth, you've been around hundreds of leaders, dozens of leadership teams, what do you feel is the heart of spiritual leadership? The heart of spiritual leadership, the way I see it, is the ability to discern and do the will of God and for a leader to be able to lead and hold a process so that a group can do that together. To me, that is the heart of leadership that is distinctly spiritual. So when I talk about the word spiritual, I mean of the Holy Spirit. I literally mean of the Holy Spirit, capital H, capital S, the Trinity, you know? Yeah. So spiritual discernment, which is what we're talking about, spiritual leadership, is led by the Holy Spirit, open to the Holy Spirit, um, responsive to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So that's the heart of spiritual leadership is that it's responsive to the Spirit through discernment. So it's paying attention to the Spirit together, mm-hmm. but then it's also doing right. what God mm-hmm. leads us to do. Right. Exactly. Um, so it's both, both, both of those mm-hmm. things, which I think um, we have seen leadership teams fall on the doing side mm-hmm. without the discerning yeah. side. Maybe we've even seen leadership teams fall on the discerning side without ever doing. Yes, exactly. So it's this mm-hmm. this marching step yes. by step. Well, it's a sacred rhythm. That. To me, yes. it's a sacred rhythm of leadership is discerning and doing the will of God. Okay. So let's talk about discernment. How do you define discernment, Ruth, and how is it different from decision-making? Discernment Well, Ignatius talks about discernment as finding God in all things in order that we might love and serve God in all. So that's a really wonderful, concise definition. But I like to expand it a little bit so there's a little bit more, a few pieces in there. So I like to think of it as recognizing and responding to the presence and the activity of God, both in the ordinary moments of our lives and in the larger decisions of our lives. Okay, stop and say that again. Because that's so beautiful, yeah. and yet there's and so every much word to it. means something. Yeah, every so word means something. Say that so again. recognizing and responding. So it's one thing to recognize; it's another thing to respond. We yeah. can recognize the, the spirit of God at work and decide not to do anything about right. it. So it's recognizing and responding to the presence and the activity of God. So to be able to know that the presence of God is here with us, yeah, that's a really important aspect of discernment. Um, But then to be able to also notice, oh, the Holy Spirit's up to something here. There's activity going on, and I want to align myself with it. So it's recognizing presence, but also, and and, you know, and and knowing ourselves to be in the presence of God at all times, but also being able to notice then when the Holy Spirit is on the move and we have an opportunity to align ourselves with it. So the the presence and the activity of God, both in the ordinary moments of our lives. So we all have more ordinary moments than we do extraordinary decision making. So the Holy Spirit is present with us all the time. So we can believe that the Holy Spirit is here in these very ordinary moments leading us. And so we respond 
to God in the ordinary moments. But then there are, and I call that the habit, by the way, that's a habit of discernment, seeing God in all. And then there's these decisions that we face. And there are spiritual disciplines we can enter into when we know we're facing a major decision and we want to make the decision in God rather than making it out of our own human wisdom. And and there's the answer to your other question is that decision-making is usually something that's fairly reliant on our own human abilities. Yeah, pros, to and, do cons, pros and cons, gut-level feelings. Yeah, or in, you know, our, our intellectual sense of research and what might be best. But discernment, by definition, is opening ourselves up to a third person, which is the Trinity, and or the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And um, it's a spiritual practice and process. It's spiritual by definition, where oftentimes decision-making is much more human. Yeah. And I enjoy that you put ordinary moments in there, too, because mm-hmm. I think we sometimes we think discernment is only for the big things. It's only for job changes mm-hmm. and building programs in the church. But really, when you cultivate uh, a habit of discernment, you find yourself moving through the steps, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about later, even in small things. Right, And exactly. you can actually, sometimes it can move pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, other times it's a long process. Yeah. And, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I saw so it. Thank you. I, I yeah. love that's very thoughtful. Um, and I think a very helpful distinction right on the front end, we're saying that discerning together or discerning in community is more than just the big things. Mm-hmm. It is the yeah. big things, but when a team learns to cultivate it um, in small things, that's when the real fun starts, I think. Yeah, well, I people think. are no longer falling asleep in meetings because the Holy <laughs> Spirit is active and everyone, everyone wants to stay awake to make sure they don't miss anything, you know? <laughs> yes. Okay, so as always, you ground your podcast seasons in a particular story of Scripture. I love that. Uh, what story is going to frame this season? This season, we're looking at the story in John 9, which is a story of Jesus healing a blind person, which is one of the most familiar acts of Jesus in the New Testament. So he was always healing blind people. And I think one of the reasons for that is because the movement from physical blindness to physical sight can also be seen as a metaphor for the spiritual journey, that the spiritual journey can be seen as a movement from spiritual blindness, not seeing God anywhere, or seeing God only where we expect to find Him, to spiritual sight, which is finding God everywhere, including where we least expect to see Him, you know? So I think one of the reasons there were so many stories of the healing of blindness is because Jesus was saying, hey, you know, this process is what our spiritual process is like, too. It's like the scales falling from our eyes, and all of a sudden, we see God everywhere, and we see God where we didn't expect to see Him. And so just pay attention to these stories, because this is what it's like. This is what your spiritual journey is like. Gosh. And I think about stories in the Hebrew Scriptures as well, like when Samuel gets called by Mm -hmm. God, and he goes to Eli Mm -hmm. three times. And Eli, we are told, has his sight has grown dim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So th- there there needs to be a new prophet mm-hmm. in the land. And so I think we see the metaphor of sight and blindness right. all throughout the Bible. And when that one, it was hearing. I mean, it was the, you know, the word of the Lord right. had not been right. heard right. for years right. by the time Samuel starts to hear something different than yeah. what anybody's heard for a long time. Right, right. Um, and I think it's when the writer says, because Eli's sight has grown dim, mm-hmm. That's another way of saying yeah. he's, he's stopped paying attention. Right, right. What happens when leaders stop mm-hmm. paying attention? Yeah. And they just decision, you know, make decisions and they move on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what kinds of blindness have you seen, Ruth, in well-meaning Christian leaders? Mm-hmm. 
Well, moving through the story of John 9, there are four examples mm. of different kinds of blindness in that story. The first kind of blindness, which many of us will resonate with, is the disciples and their blindness as they are walking along this road and they see something very ordinary, which is a blind man's begging by the road, which would be very normal for people in that culture. So this is an ordinary walk down a road and they see something they would expect to see. And the disciples, rather than allowing compassion to stir or allowing themselves to wonder what they might do to be able to be helpful to this person in Christian love, instead they turn it into a theological conversation and they say, who sinned this man or his parents? Which is such a bad question. I mean, it's a blame <laughs> question. I, I see their their question as being adding insult to injury. You know, the guy's already down. Let's kick yeah. him. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, now let's talk about blame and blame it on him <laughs> or his parents. So they are asking the wrong question. They're not asking the spiritual question. Jesus reframes it immediately and says to them, that's not the question. The question is, what is the work of God here and how can we join God in it? So he reframes the question immediately. Um, But the disciples do what many of us do, and that is we look at these situations through theological lenses. We allow it to become an opportunity for you know, um, theological debate. What should we do about the blindness mm-hmm. issue? That's right. That's right. Um, and where's the sin here? Yes. You know, like who, who's to blame? The blame question, you know, yeah. who's to blame? So I think many of us can relate to that. Many of us who have been in Christian leadership for a long time and have been to seminary and all that, we are trained to turn everything into a theological discussion. And Jesus is saying in this passage, wait a second, that is the wrong question. The right question is, what is the work of God here and how can we join God in it? Well, that is the discernment question always. Okay, so the first blindness is a kind of looking for the sin or trying to make a theological conversation out yes, of something that's much bigger. rather than staying present with the human thing that's going on, because okay. here's a blind man that needs help, but yeah. instead we're having a theological conversation. The other thing about this passage that I think is very sobering for any of us who are part of denominations and, and other kinds of faith groups is that there was a shared blindness here. Um, it was the fact mm. that they had already been shaped by a very superstitious culture where somebody had to be to blame. Right. And so th- they had they had a collective sort of blindness that they were all participating in together, Yes, which often happens to those of us who have been clustered together in certain denominational settings for a long time. We all have the same blindness going on. Mm-hmm. So to have someone come in and you know, try to get us to think in some new way or see in some new way is really challenging. Yeah. And maybe grace for that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, grace for us when we realize, oh my, mm-hmm. we've, That's we've what been I've blind. Done. That's what this. I've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. we can move on from that. Right. But you have to name it. Right. Right. And you have to be aware that systemic blindness is a part of what happens when groups have been together for a long time, is yeah. that we all share the same blindness together then. Okay, so what's the second kind of blindness? The second kind of blindness is the neighbors. They had been seeing the same man born blind on the same corner every day of their lives. And in fact, I think Mm. probably, given the longevity of the Jewish community, I have a feeling that the people that saw him, the neighbors, were the ones that had actually been around when he was born. They were friends of the family. They had grieved this situation. And so now the idea that a blind man could be healed or that this particular man could be healed was just outside their paradigms. Cognitive filters, whatever you want to call them, when we have thought the same way for a, a, you know for a long time, we actually have ruts and grooves in our brains. We have paradigms, we have cognitive filters, and we can hardly see anything that's different than what our cognitive filters will allow. So Richard Rohr says uh, people don't see things as they are; they see things as they are. <laughs> yeah. You know. I so in other that. words, we can only see what we're ready to see. We can only see what we desire to see. We can't see 
It's very yeah. hard to see things that are fresh or that challenge our paradigm. So, I mean, really, the neighbor category is huge for us because we all have paradigms that have developed over years and years of time of thinking in only one way. So when something new comes in, we literally cannot see it. And there's actually some humor in this part of the story because the, the neighbors are so determined not to see something they can't see that they actually start to argue about whether or not this man is actually the man that they saw born born blind. And so he's literally there raising his hand and saying, I am the man, I am the one. Yeah, and yeah. they're saying, now maybe this is somebody different. <laughs> so it actually shows us how hard we can work yeah. to keep our own paradigms in place, which I don't know about you, Steve, but I find that so sobering. Yeah. Yeah. And the question that comes for me in my own discernment then is, oh, God, please, if my own paradigms and cognitive filters are keeping me from seeing where you are at work in some new way, please Help me take them see. down. Take them down so that yes. I can see where you are at work. It is sobering. It is mm-hmm. absolutely sobering. Because another thing I love, what Richard Rohr talks about, that the ego, the mind, mm-hmm. wants to place everything in dualistic yeah. thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's this or that. It's yeah. his fault, her fault. It's mm-hmm. and And I think when we refuse to see something in a more expansive way, right. it, discernment becomes nearly impossible. Oh, absolutely. Because we'll never get over mm-hmm. our own desire. Right. And the Spirit is always going to be the wind that blows where it wills. Yeah. The, the Spirit's always going to be blowing through with something new. So right. if, we ha- if our paradigms are too entrenched and if we don't have any spiritual practice that helps us to open beyond that, that wind of the Spirit can blow through and we'll never see it or feel it. So the disciples' blindness, the neighbors' blindness, what's the third? The third one is the Pharisees. And, of course, this one is extremely sobering to those of us who are in positions of religious leadership or spiritual leadership because the the you know the Jewish leaders, the, the spiritual leaders, I'm just going to call them spiritual leaders yeah. right now, the spiritual leaders who were the gatekeepers in that community, the ones that you know established the spiritual environment in that community, they were very threatened by Jesus' d- demonstration of spiritual authority and power. And so they tried to dismiss him. Yeah. And they did it cruelly, and they did it in very, very manipulative ways. And so they actually called the, the Sabbath, the practice of Sabbath, to the forefront, because this happened on a Sunday, and Jesus healed on a Sunday. And so that's the way they got in to begin to really diminish Jesus' power and to sort of take him out. Um, and that conversation is a very long conversation in John 9, all the ways in which they tried to discredit Jesus, all the ways in which they tried to convince people that the healing hadn't really happened. And then finally, because they couldn't get the blind man to move off dead center, they could not get him to retract his story about being healed by this man, Jesus. They literally, because they have nothing else to do, they, they literally expel him. Yeah. They literally put him out of the community, which in that case was a very serious thing because in the Jewish community, there was no survival outside of the community. It was economic, it was spiritual, it was where you got the forgiveness for your sins, it was the whole community hung together and and survived on the basis of their life together in community. And so to be expelled from that community was the most serious thing that could happen to a person. And yet that is what the Pharisees eventually did in this story was because they were so highly threatened, they eventually just expelled the man completely so that his witness, so that his testimony would not be within their community. Which I think is also sobering because if you're in a position of power and you refuse mm-hmm. to see something different, yeah. you will end up abusing your power, your power exactly. and hurting people in ways that you will justify by saying this is the right thing. Right, exactly. Um, but you'll end up hurting people. Right. And I think the other thing that's here in a very subtle way that we as Christian leaders must grapple with is that the Pharisees had elevated um, 
preserving their system, the religious system as they had known it, they elevated that over the actual work of Jesus in and among them. And that is extremely sobering as well. So they were trying to preserve the system that had informed all of their behaviors for a long time. And I would say not just the system itself, but their position in the system. Because when you're a leader in a system, you have a place in that system. So if the system gets challenged, then your position in it is threatened as well. So I think that underneath what was happening here was also the Pharisees' attempts to preserve not only the system, but their place of authority in it. And that is something for us as leaders to watch for as well. And very, very hard to acknowledge those kinds of dynamics within ourselves. We like to believe that all of our leadership is completely altruistic and completely <laughs> God-centered and good and loving and all that. But the truth is all of us have a desire for security. All of us have a desire to preserve whatever it is that makes us feel safe and secure and in control. Yeah. You know? Well, a system or, or mm-hmm. an organization, especially one that's a long, that's been around for a long mm-hmm. time, will start to fight for survival. Mm-hmm, that's right. And if we're if we have a vested interest in keeping mm-hmm. our position of power in that system, um, we we will get in bed with that system mm-hmm. and we'll be blind to hurting people. And right. I think Christian leaders when we read stories about Pharisees, I think we need to like attempt mm-hmm. first to see am I the Pharisee? Right. Cuz we we was oh, hey, we're not. I mean, that's that's the Pharisee. I'm the I'm the Jesus guy, right. you know. And I think so mm-hmm. often I think that's why the story is so powerful is because the disciples for one thing were those who had been walking most closely with Jesus. Yeah. And I'd like to identify with them and say, yeah. well, I I I think of myself <laughs> yeah. as being a disciple and walking closely yeah. with Jesus. And yet they're asking the wrong question. Yeah. And then the Pharisees and I like to call them spiritual leaders when I refer to the story because I want us to identify with yeah. them. Yeah. If I call them Pharisees, we can say, oh, those are those yes. Jewish people way back then. If we call them the spiritual leaders of the day, then we're in the story, and it's our story. Way to go. Um, yeah. So Thank you for that. Um, and so what's the fourth blindness? The fourth blindness is, the is um, you could call it blindness of the parents or the fear of the parents to actually own and to name what had happened among them. So the 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 uh, spiritual leaders get pretty desperate yep. to try to discredit Jesus or to try to pretend that the miracle did not happen. So they call the parents, who are the defenseless poor in this story. Um, they don't have resources, and for them, this the the you know the Jewish community is all they have. It is their means of survival, and so they come in a very vulnerable position. They're in a very much in a one down position, but they're called by the spiritual leaders to come and. You know, have an interview, which was really more like an interrogation. Yeah. And, the, and the parents knew it. They were savvy. They were wise. They knew that they were not being called to gain real information. They knew that they were being called to be interrogated. And so the spiritual leaders of the day asked them, what happened? Is this your son who was born blind? And how then does he see? And the parents are very wise in the way they respond. And they say, yes, he is our son. Yes, he was born blind. How then does he see? We cannot answer that on the grounds that might incriminate us, you know, because they knew that if they acknowledged this miracle, they could be incriminated. So that, of course, enraged the spiritual leaders of the day that they could not get the answer that they wanted out of the parents. So what's what's functioning there is fear. You know, the parents, they are the ones who do know what happened. They do know that there was a healing, but out of fear, they're not able to state it and to actually give witness and bear testimony to what they've experienced. And that is 
That is a very sad thing as well, because they were the ones that the spiritual leaders of the day were supposed to be ministering to. Yeah. And so there was no one in that leadership circle who gave these people a high five and said, that is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Your yeah. son who was blind can now see. How does it feel? Let's have a party. Yeah. There was nobody who responded with joy and joined mm. them mm. in the wonder of this day. So a day that should have been a day of celebration became a day of fear and expulsion and, you know, all of that. Ugh. Which, ugh, uh, the cost of blindness mm-hmm. in leadership uh, is just so big. So let's say uh, we're listening and we heard one of those uh, blindnesses and we said, that's me. Mm-hmm. What, um, how should we be praying and moving forward if we've identified ourselves in one or more of those areas? Well, that's a great question, and it is a hopeful question, because there are ways to pray about this and ways to open ourselves to God when we realize that we, too, are blind. We're not stuck. We don't have to stay stuck. So if you identify with the disciples and the fact that they were asking the wrong question and missing the point altogether, we could ask Jesus about that. Ask God, am I asking the wrong question? Like, I bring a question to discernment. Is this even the right question? Um, I, so I think that that's that's a wonderful thing. And also to say, is there any place where I am moving into theological um, debate rather than staying present with the human experience here and what it means for me to bring the love of Christ to this situation? Because discernment will always move us deeper and deeper into the question of what does love call me to? Yeah. And that's what the disciples' piece of the story tells us, that Jesus was not doing theological discussion. He was asking a whole different set of questions. And trying to bring a loving presence to a person who is hurting in the world. So where am I asking the wrong question if you see yourself in the plight of the disciples? If you identify with the neighbors who are stuck in their own paradigms, you can ask God, where are you bigger and more and outside of my way of seeing you and seeing this situation? And if you're willing to ask that question and you're willing to see what God shows you in response, then you are opening up to a God that's bigger than your own small mind. Like if we can really figure God out completely, then we only have a God of our own small minds. And I don't want a God of my own small minds. I want God to be bigger and more than the smallness of my own human mind. So it's a brave question to say, God, where are you bigger and more doing something different than what I could have ever envisioned? That is a very brave question for leaders to ask in the midst of some of the naughty things that we end up facing. If you identify with the spiritual leaders of the day who are so caught up in preserving the system and in preserving their own place in the system, we could um, ask God to help us to become aware of our own protective mechanisms to say, what am I trying to protect in this thing, God? What am I trying to protect? And then um, what do I stand to lose if I were to see, really see what God is doing here? Whoa. Is there a place where God might be calling me to lose my life, small l, in order to gain that which is life indeed, capital L. Life indeed being surrender and abandonment to God. Life with the small L is just our own human mm-hmm. attempts to control things. Yeah. Life big L is is abandonment and surrender to God. Um, so those are, those are brave questions as well. And then finally, in the parents, we might see ourselves in that as well. Some of us might be aware of things that God's doing in our own lives or movements of the, of the spirit that we believe are really true and good. And we might be afraid, though. There might be a fear to stand up and say, I saw that. I know that. This is what I'm experiencing with Jesus, which was what the blind man did. He continued to just stand on what he knew and what he had experienced with God. And so, so interesting, the disciples 
or the uh, Pharisees try to draw him into the theological conversation, and he says, I don't know what you all are talking about. I only know one thing, and that is once I was blind, and now I can see. You guys go off and talk about what you got to talk about. I'm not going to get into that conversation because I know this one thing, and this is where I'm going to stand. Now, that is a courageous place to stand. Yeah. The blind man was pretty amazing. He was standing against a whole culture at that point. He was standing against his community and the leaders of his you know, religious faith tradition, yeah. saying, you guys go ahead with that conversation. That's not my conversation. My conversation is, this is what I know in my own experience with God. Oh, my goodness. That is a whole other episode. Mm-hmm. That is not my conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move on with yeah. what God is doing. Some of us yes. need to just pause mm-hmm. and reflect on that. Yeah. Am I stuck in a conversation that keeps happening yeah. over and mm-hmm. over again? And prevents me from moving on yep. the truth that I, standing yep. on or moving into the truth. Yeah. That of what God is doing in my life. Yeah. So that would be one to take to your spiritual director. Yeah. Game. <laughs> uh, we're not going to solve that for you. Um, okay. Beautiful. So uh, this season, uh, we're going to talk all about discernment in community. So give us a glimpse, Ruth, if you would, of what we're going to be covering over the next eight episodes. Yes. We are going to be looking at the spiritual preparation of each and every leader. Um, for the practice and the process. You can't really engage well in a discernment process if you're not prepared yourself for it. Um, Then we're going to look at the group, you know, the group that's gathered for leadership, whether it's an elder group, a board, or a staff, pastoral staff team, something like that, and how do we prepare the community. And part of how we will prepare the community is actually moving into a conviction that we want to move beyond decision-making into discernment, and we're going to commit ourselves to that as a group. But that's going to be a conversion. The group is going to have to go through a conversion experience, and then they're going to have to figure out how to cultivate their life together as a group to make discernment their main priority. So there's the preparation of each individual leader. There's the preparation of the community for discernment. And then there's the practice itself, which has its own moves. And so we'll we'll walk through the moves in an actual discernment practice at the corporate leadership level. So it's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And having gone through this stuff again with my team, Mm -hmm. I have a very vested interest in this season because I I know what it's like to be caught in just decision-making and not focusing on our our inner life together so that we can be people of discernment. Mm-hmm. I know the time it takes yes. to, uh, to do this, but I also know the payoff and mm-hmm. it's big. And it does take time. And it is a like there's no direct flight from episode 1 to episode 9. Absolutely. This you, is going to be yeah. a brick on brick <laughs> yeah. sort of experience. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's beautiful, Ruth. Um, well, I am wondering if you have a prayer you would like to close oh, this episode I do. with. There's a beautiful prayer that, that to me emerges out of this John 9 story where hopefully if we've really sat in the John 9 story, we're aware of our own blind spots and obstacles and needs for healing spiritually from our blindness. So this, this prayer is a simple one from a Celtic prayer book, and it has to do with healing. So it says, heal our inner sight, O God, that we may know the difference between good and evil. Open our eyes, that we may see what is true and what is false. Restore us to wisdom, that we may be well in our souls. Restore us to wisdom, that we and our world may be well. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Ruth, for your insight, your wisdom. In the next episode, 
we're going to really dive into what it means to start with spiritual transformation, which is absolutely essential if we're going to be a team of people who move into discernment together. We're going to ask questions like, what's the best thing that any leader brings to their leadership context? And where does pursuing God's will together start? So make sure to come back for episode two. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much for listening today. We know there are thousands of podcasts to choose from, so we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. In July, the Transforming Center will launch their 15th Transforming Community. If God has stirred up something in you about your own leadership experience, maybe God is inviting you to begin a transforming leadership journey of your own. I joined Transforming Community number six way back in 2011, and it was such an important part of my spiritual journey. The Transforming Community experience is designed to better integrate your faith and your leadership. The two-year experience of spiritual formation is designed for pastors, leaders, and influencers. It is grounded in scripture, animated by a Trinitarian approach to transformation in community, and it's informed by the richness and diversity of our Christian heritage. Also, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we would love to hear from you. Please leave a comment wherever you listen to the podcast and visit transformingcenter.org to learn more about how to apply for the next Transforming Community.